Amen. Thank you, Paul, and good morning, everybody. My name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at PBC, and I'm coming to you this morning with a particularly low voice. Uh, Just 12 hours ago, I had no voice, and so the fact that I am up here with any voice at all, I am very grateful for. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Well, as we we turn to, to the Word together, let's just open our time in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you are here with us. We want to invite you in by your Spirit. We pray, Lord, that as we open your word, that you would speak to us, that you would draw our attention exactly where you would have it, and that you would be moving in our lives and shaping our hearts, uh, even while we are in this room this morning. So, Spirit, we just offer this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin this morning, I want to invite you to imagine with me a woman named Rose. Rose is 26 years old, and she is a single mother to two young children. Rose loves these children with her whole heart. In fact, she loves them with the kind of love that she didn't even know was possible before she had kids. If you're a parent, maybe you can sympathize with that feeling. But for Rose, it was even different because she grew up in a home where she didn't get to experience what it was like to really love or be loved. Her father was abusive, her mother was angry, and at 16 years old, she left home and never looked back. Very shortly after this, she became pregnant with her first child. 18 months after that, she had her second child on the way, and uh, she found herself with less time now than she wished she had to spend with these kids. Because even though she loved them with her whole heart and wanted nothing more to be with them, She was also working three jobs just to make ends meet. She had her day job, she had her evening job, and she was picking up side gigs on the weekend, whatever she could to try to give her children a better life than she had been given. Now, I want you to imagine with me that you meet Rose and you hear a little bit about her story and you want to help her and you have some means to be able to do so. And you, so you begin to brainstorm, what could I do that could be the most helpful thing to Rose? What gift could I give her that would make the biggest difference in her life? And so you think about buying her a new car. Hers was old and kept breaking down, and what a gift it would be to have reliable transportation to bring her to work and get her kids to school. But then you think, what would it, maybe, maybe I could purchase her a new home in a better neighborhood, a safer neighborhood with better schools. Or or maybe you could fully fund a 529 plan for her children so that they would have the opportunity to go to college one day. That would be amazing. Any of those gifts would be amazing gifts, life-changing gifts for Rose and her children. But I think there's another gift that you could give her that would be even more valuable than any of those. What about the gift of a day off? Or better yet, the gift of a day off every single week. A time for Rose to stop, to rest, to refresh her tired body and her weary soul, to spend some time with her kids, to read a book, to get together with a friend, just an opportunity once a week to slow down and take a break. 
when the people of Israel were first brought out of their slavery in Egypt and into the wilderness, we read about this in Exodus 16, they find themselves in the desert and they are very much in need. They are a needy people and they're very infancy as a nation. And so God gives them several gifts to sustain them. The first gift that God gives them is water. They needed water to drink. And so God takes a pond and he makes it fresh water for them. And then the second gift that God gives them is food because they're hungry. And so God provides food for them. This is the manna that comes down from heaven. Those two make sense, right? That's intuitive. God is just meeting their very basic human needs. The third gift that comes is one that might surprise us, though. We read about this gift in Exodus 16, starting in verse 22. It says, on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers. This is talking about the manna that was coming down from heaven. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over lay aside to be kept until the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them. And it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. This people, this young nation, finds themselves out in the wilderness after generations of slavery in Egypt. And slaves don't get a day off. Slaves work 24-7, sun up to sundown. For generations, the people of Israel had been doing this. And God brings these people out into the wilderness, and he gives them water, and he gives them food, and he gives them a day off every single week to stop, to rest, 24 hours to cease from their labors, to spend time with God, to worship, to be in community with one another, 24 hours, one day, every week. I think that's the greatest gift that God could have given the people of Israel at that time, and I think it's the gift that sustained them, and we read about this in the scriptures, that sustained them through their life with God. Well, this morning, we are going to uh, look at this idea of Sabbath. You know, Sabbath means different things to different people. For a lot of people in today's world, and maybe for a lot of us, Sabbath is something we don't even really know what it is, and we certainly don't think about it very often. For others, uh, Sabbath is just law. It's just rule. It's just legalism. For, for a lot of us, I'm guessing, we're familiar with the concept of Sabbath. Maybe it's even something that we desire, but it's probably not a regular practice in our lives. That's probably most people in the church today. But for Rose and for the people of Israel, Sabbath was pure gift, pure gift, a gift that reached into the deepest part of them, a gift that sustained them through the good and through the bad. 
a gift that money couldn't buy, but a gift that restored them to shalom, to peace, to life with God as it was meant to be lived. And this morning, as we continue our, our study of Genesis, we're going to look at the first Sabbath. It comes in the first few verses of Genesis chapter 2, and these are the forgotten verses of the creation narrative. When we read through Genesis 1 and 2, in Genesis 1, we actually get two separate creation narratives. We have Genesis 1, which we've looked at so far. It gives us the six days of creation. And then in Genesis 2, starting in verse 4, we have another account of creation that focuses in on the creation of humanity and, and then placed in the garden. But nestled in between there, we have the seventh day of creation, the forgotten day of creation. But, but this day ought not to be forgotten. In fact, as we read our way through the narrative and we get to six, the sixth day, we, we feel sometimes like we, we've reached the pinnacle, right? And in a way, we have humanity has been created, created in the image of God. God blesses them. And God says, this is very good. And it is very good. But we ought to be asking as we get to the end of the sixth day, what's going to happen on the seventh day? Right? I mean, we know a week has seven days, right? What happens on the seventh day? Imagine that this afternoon you're not able to catch the 49ers game. And so, uh, you know, your heart is broken when you realize that you took a nap and slept through the whole thing. And so you, you go and you go down the internet and you look for an article, you find an article on the game. And you read about what happened in the first quarter. And you read about what happened in the second quarter. And you read about what happened in the third quarter. And then the article stops. And you're like, what happened to the fourth quarter? Like, I know there's more to the story. There's something else. That's, that, how did the game end, right? That's the question you ought to be asking then. When we get to the end of Genesis chapter 1, we ought to be asking, what, what is about to happen next? I mean, this has been great, but we're only six days into seven. What happens on the seventh day? And it, it's with that kind of expectation that we get to Genesis chapter 2, where in the first three verses, we read this. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. On the seventh day, God did nothing. It's a bit anticlimactic, isn't it? I mean, we're, we're expecting something, something great, but on the seventh day, God stops. He rests. He does nothing. But it's a nothing that is bursting with meaning. That's the part that we miss sometimes. To help us understand this, take a look at this image. This image is uh, a variation of an image that's referred to as Rubens' vase. It was first created in 1915 by a Danish psychologist, Edgar Rubin. And what he's doing in this image is he's playing with the idea of negative space. Right? Negative space is the space in an image or a work of art that is left blank. It's left empty. And so as we look at this image, right in the middle, we just have emptiness. Right? It's the neutral color, it's the white, it's just the background. And we see in that emptiness there is 
a vase, right? That's one way we can look at this image. But there's another way to look at the image also, is there not? There's something else that we can see here. What else do we see? We see two faces. We see the profile of two faces looking at each other. Now, those faces would not be there if that negative space was not there. And the negative space is meant to draw our attention to what is there. Right? And this idea of negative space shows up in art of all kinds and images of all, of all kinds. We see it in our lives every day. One place that we see it that we might not notice very often is in this logo uh, that drives by us on trucks all the time, the FedEx logo, right? When we look at the FedEx logo, the first thing that we see most likely is the letters, FedEx. But if we pay attention to the negative space, we notice that between the E and the X, there is an arrow, right? In the negative space, in the emptiness. And that arrow is what gives this logo meaning because FedEx wants us to know that they are a company who moves stuff, right? They are a company who is going places. They are a company that moves. And they use the negative space in the image to convey that. So when we get to the seventh day and we read that God does nothing, God is creating negative space. He's leaving an openness, he's leaving an emptiness, but it's in that emptiness, in that nothingness, that the whole rest of creation is given meaning. And most of the time, we just skip right over it. So what is going on here? What is going on on this first Sabbath? What is going on on the seventh day of creation? Well, let's read the verses again. Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So we read these verses, we, we hear the repetition of the word rested. Right? God rested, he rested, he rested. And that word for rested is the Hebrew word Shabbat. It's the word that we oftentimes translate as Sabbath. On the seventh day, God Sabbathed, which literally means he ceased, he stopped. And in that ceasing and in that stopping, we see that he is resting. That's why it's translated that way. But literally, it just means that he stopped. So God gets to the seventh day, this climactic moment, and the, 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 the thing that he does that day is he stops. But then he does something else. He, he takes a look at this day, and it says that he blessed the seventh day. Now, uh, in the creation narrative up to this point, there's only one other thing that has been blessed. When God creates humans, he blesses them. He blesses them. And to bless something is to, to favor it, to extend favor to it. Right? God has a favorite part of creation, and it's us, humans. We, we are the climax of creation. We are the pinnacle of creation. God creates humanity, and he says, this is very good. The only other thing in the whole narrative that God blesses is a day. Did you know that God has a favorite day? <laughs> and it wasn't the day he created Yosemite. It wasn't the day he created the Great Barrier Reef. It certainly wasn't Monday. Nobody likes that. <laughs> it, it was the Sabbath, the seventh day. 
God creates it and he blesses it and he says, this is my favorite day of the week. And then it says he, he makes it holy. He makes it holy. And there's nothing else in the whole creation narrative that is said to be holy. We know that God is holy, but nothing that God creates is holy. No person, no place, no thing. The only thing that God creates that he says is holy is a space in time, right? A section of time, one day of the week, the seventh day, he says, this, this is holy. And to be holy is to be set apart for a special use. God says, this is my favorite day, and I'm setting it apart for something special. So what is it that God is setting apart this day for? What is it that is so special about the Sabbath? Well, we're going to see that there's a lot. There's a lot going on here. That as we make our way through the rest of Scripture, this idea of Sabbath becomes very, very important. The people of Israel structured their lives around this rhythm of working six days and resting one. The Sabbath was like an anchor for their week. And it's so big that it even shows up in the Ten Commandments. When the Ten Commandments are given, the only rhythm of life, the only, we could say, spiritual practice or spiritual discipline that shows up in the Ten Commandments is the Sabbath. God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. He says it twice. It's actually the longest of the commandments that's given, the most amount of space to it. And then we work our way through, through the rest of uh, the Old Testament, and God has a lot to say. People aren't keeping the Sabbath, and God is upset about this. And then we get to the New Testament, and we meet Jesus, and Jesus is talking about the Sabbath. And Jesus is practicing the Sabbath. And in the rest of the New Testament, the authors are talking about the Sabbath. And so often, we just don't even think about it. But this is a major biblical concept. This is a major biblical idea. So what I want to do today is to stop and to sit with the idea of Sabbath for a little bit and to unpack it a little bit. What is it that God sets this day aside for? What is so special about the seventh day? And what we see is that the, the, the Sabbath is meant to teach us a number of things. Jesus tells us later that man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. That This is a gift to us. So in what way is the Sabbath a gift? What is it that the Sabbath is trying to do for us? Well, there's a number of things. The first of which we see is that the Sabbath is trying to teach us something about God, which shouldn't be a surprise if we've been reading Genesis so far. Genesis ch ch chapter one, we saw that as God is doing all this work of creation all these days, and he's you know, putting stars in the sky, and he's separating things, and he's filling them, that all of this is meant to teach us something about God, to help us understand who God is, what kind of God he is, what he's like, how he relates to us. And the same thing is true in the Sabbath. It's trying to teach us something about God. But we are in a place so far removed from the ancient context in which this was written that we oftentimes miss part of what's going on in these chapters of, of Genesis. It's part, and the part that we miss is the part that helps us to see the meaning of the Sabbath. You see, in the ancient world, uh, the idea of rest, which we see on the seventh day, is very closely tied with the idea of a temple. And throughout scripture, creation itself is oftentimes talked about as a temple of God. 
Even in these first few chapters of Genesis, we have language that's used that's very similar to temple language. So part of what God is doing in creation is he is creating not just a world, but he is creating a temple in which to reign. Old Testament scholar John Walton uh, is an expert in ancient Near Eastern history and culture and religion. uh, And this is what he has to say about rest in the ancient world. He says, rest is the principal function of a temple, and a temple is always where deity finds rest. So on the seventh day, as God rests, as he stops, what he is doing is he is taking the seat on the throne in his cosmic temple. And what this is supposed to teach us about God is that he is the one running the universe. So often when we read that God rested, I think we're confused. We're like, well, he's God, he's all powerful, so he's probably not tired. But when I hear rest, I think laying on a couch. I think taking a nap. I think checking out for a while. But God is not checking out of creation on the seventh day. God is sitting down on his throne because he wants to be more involved because he is now ready to get about his work of ruling the universe. So as God rests on the seventh day, he is taking his seat on the throne. And that is meant to teach us that God is the one running the universe, right? God is the one responsible for keeping the universe going. God is the one responsible for keeping all of life going and for keeping our lives going. But oftentimes it doesn't feel like that, does it? Oftentimes it feels like we are the ones responsible for making life happen. Oftentimes it feels like life is just one big juggling act. Does it not, right? I happen to have with me here a few juggling balls. And I think sometimes life just feels like this, right? (laughs) We are going and going and going. We feel like we're in constant motion and Like every time we try to stop, we're worried that we're going to drop a ball, right? And the reality is that in your life, if you stop, if you stop juggling, you will probably drop a ball. (laughs) But that's okay, because your life is not running because you make it run. The world is not running because you make it run. It feels like that, but God is the one running the universe. We don't have to. And so the Sabbath, this opportunity to stop, is meant to remind us, it's meant to free us from the feeling that we are responsible for running our lives, that we are responsible for running our families, that we are responsible for running our workplaces, and that if we stop, life will just fall apart. Some balls will drop, some balls will drop. But oftentimes, we overemphasize our own importance in the world. So in the Sabbath, we have the opportunity to stop and recognize that God is the one keeping the world spinning and we don't have to. And that if we can maybe stop and create a little extra space in our lives, we might actually find that we have more time and more attention to give to being with our creator and experiencing life as it's meant to be lived. 
So the Sabbath is, is trying to teach us something about God, primarily that he is on the throne, that he is running the universe. But the Sabbath also teaches us something about ourselves. So I want to bring us back to the people of Israel as they're in the wilderness in Sinai. They have uh, been brought out of Egypt and they find themselves wandering around in the desert. Now, this, this first generation that comes out is uh, just a, a, they're a nation in their infancy and they're still learning how to trust God and they don't do a very good job. They keep failing, they keep failing, they keep failing. And so God says, I'm going to take some time and I'm going to have you wander around as you learn to trust me. And I'm going to wait until this first generation dies off and a new generation rises up. And it's this new generation that I'm going to bring out of the desert into the promised land. And it's actually to that generation, as they're on the edge of the promised land, about to go in, asking some big questions about who they are as a people, about where they come from, about how they're supposed to live their lives. It's to that generation that the book of Genesis and the other first five books of the Bible that we call the Pentateuch, it's to that generation that that, that section of scripture is written. And it's written in large part to help them understand who they are. They're trying to figure out how life is supposed to be lived. And this is a generation that are children of slaves children of generations of slaves, 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And a slave is told in no uncertain terms that their value in life is one and the same with that which they can produce. So the job of the Israelites, the Hebrew people in slavery was to make bricks for the Egyptian empire. And it was very easy to just assign a number to value a person based on the amount of bricks that they could produce. And so it's the children of these slaves who are out in the wilderness. It's the children of these slaves who are walking around trying to figure out what it means to be the people of God. And they have this lie that has been passed on through generations that they just are the amount of bricks that they can produce, that their value is just one and the same as that which they can produce. There was a time in the history of our nation when people with skin darker than mine were told in no uncertain terms that their value in life was one and the same with that which they could produce, the amount of crops that could be planted or harvested. There are many of us, several of us perhaps, who have lost work in the last year, who are living in fear that that might happen in the coming days or weeks or months. And there is a temptation that we face in that moment to believe that our value is one and the same with that which we can produce. And maybe if I just produced a little bit more, maybe if I just made myself a little bit more valuable, I would still have a job and I would still be able to provide for my family. And that taps into this deep-seated human tendency to believe the lie from the evil one that we just are what we do, that our value is just one and the same with that which we can produce. And to that first nation who is wandering around the wilderness in Sinai, to the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren of slaves in our nation, and to any and every one of us who has bought into that lie that we are what we produce, God gives the gift of Sabbath, a break, 
an opportunity to take 24 hours one day a week and stop producing, stop making, stop trying to think about adding value to the world. Six days we do that, absolutely. But one day we stop. And as we stop, we are reminded that our value is not one and the same with what we produce. And we let that truth that starts in our mind, I mean, we know that, right? We know that, but it lets it sink deep down into our bodies, into our very rhythms of the way that we live our lives as humans. And God gives us this as a gift because he says, I want you to know that you are valuable just on account of who you are, just because you are, just because you exist, you have value. Even if you can add no value to the world, you still have value. God gives us the Sabbath in order to remind us of that week in and week out. We are not machines. We can't run 24 7, 365. We weren't designed to function that way. And so God invites us into the Sabbath to remind us of our dependence on him and our value, which is in him. But there's another thing that's happening in the Sabbath as well that I want to point out. And this same thing actually happens with many different things in the Old Testament, where we have these ideas or we have these rituals, whether it's uh, the whole uh, temple system, the, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, the kingship, all of these things in the Old Testament, they are something in and of themselves, but they also find their meaning in that they point us to Jesus that Jesus fulfills all of these things in one way. And so it is with the Sabbath as well. One of the purposes of Sabbath is to point us to our place of true rest, a rest that goes deeper than just stopping one day a week. Jesus talks about this kind of rest in Matthew 11. We, we reference these verses often because they're so deep and they ring so true with us. Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and I will give you rest for your souls. There's a kind of rest that even one day a week won't satisfy. A deep restlessness in our souls. And Jesus says, come to me and find your rest in me. I want to give you rest. But this connects also to the Sabbath, because we spend so much of our lives trying to prove ourselves to other people, right? whether we're aware of it or not. And I think we spend so much of our lives trying to prove ourselves to God, trying to earn, trying to achieve something in God's eyes. But when once a week we take time to stop and to rest, we are acknowledging that everything that has to be done and it oftentimes feels like there are so many things that have to be done, right? The, the lists are endless. But on the Sabbath, we are reminded of the fact that everything that has to be done, that is those most important things, most critical things, have already been done in Christ. Being made right with God, having our sins forgiven, having the door to eternal life open to us, defeating the power of sin and death and evil, 
Those are the most important things. And when we stop on the Sabbath, we remind ourselves of the fact that everything that has to be done has already been done in Christ. The Sabbath is meant to point us to Jesus, to the truth of the gospel, where we can sit in worship one day a week. It just helps us to keep things in perspective. It makes some of the big problems in life feel like small problems. It doesn't take them away. It doesn't fix everything, but it does help us keep things in perspective. This past year has been a difficult year for me in some ways, especially about this time a year ago. I was finding myself just very worn thin. Got three little kids at home and a full-time job, and life just feels very full. I'm sure many of you can resonate with that, right? Life feels very full. But I was in a uniquely busy season of life in the middle of a busy semester for a grad class I was taking, and. Just all of my time was spent doing things, right? Whether it was writing a sermon for church or working on a paper for school or doing laundry because my kids literally had none in their drawers, right? There there was always something that I was doing. And I was so tired at like a really, really deep level and emotionally just not really doing well as a result of this. Um, But I knew that I had a sabbatical coming. I had a sabbatical coming that summer. And so February, March, April, May, it was just a sense of, we're almost there, right? Sabbatical is coming in June. It's going to be eight weeks to step away, to slow down, to not have to work, just to have some space. That's going to make things better. Then sabbatical came in June, um, and it it was a great gift to me. And it really did help with some things. Uh, Primarily, it helped me catch up on sleep, which was amazing. There were some really high highs that we had over our sabbatical as a family. We made some memories that we will never forget together, but there were also some really challenging things that happened, some relational struggles that were going on, some health challenges in our extended family, very serious and even terminal health challenges. We were back and forth in and out of urgent care in the ER with one of our kids for the, for the, uh, over the course of the summer, and as a result, we had plans that had to be canceled and modifi- modified, and even vacations that we had to decide not to take. And there was a physical rest that I got over those eight weeks, no doubt, but I, I, left, I came out of those eight weeks just feeling emotionally exhausted. And when I showed up back here after that sabbatical, I, I think I just felt angry. <laughs> I, I was angry at myself for not being able to carry everything and for a sense of like, I, I had a break and maybe I wasted it in some way. I was angry at God for not giving me the sabbatical that I felt like I needed. And I, w- I was just deeply frustrated that things didn't go the way that I wanted them to. And so I knew at that point as I got back that something had to change. Like the the rhythms of life were not sustainable. Something had to change. And so I started to make a number of changes. I started going to therapy, which was really helpful, has been really helpful. I connected with some friends and mentors and had an opportunity to talk with them, and and that was deeply helpful. I, I started sleeping more, which was like a game changer. Totally, totally helpful, physically and spiritually and emotionally, all around. But I also started to take Sabbath more seriously, to say, what would it look like once a week to take 24 hours just to stop? Not because everything's done, (laughs) but just take a day to stop and to rest. To sleep in 
just a tiny little bit more when you've got little kids. It feels like amazing to slow down and have an unhurried cup of coffee in the morning, to be able to sit and play with my kids in the afternoon, to connect with my wife in the like two minutes out of the day that the kids don't need anything, <laughs> to take a nap, to pray, just to be out in nature with people I love, with the Lord, just to slow down and stop. And I think each of those changes that I made along the way were helpful, but I think this practice of Sabbath has had an outsized impact on my wellness all around, such that now, five months after I came back from sabbatical at that place where I felt totally burned out still, that I can say, I don't feel that way anymore. I feel rested. I feel healthier. I feel like I'm moving in the right direction, and it feels sustainable in large part, I think, because of this practice of Sabbath, just taking time each week to stop, to be with the Lord, to be with people I love, to remind myself that God's in control, to remind myself that I can drop a ball and it's okay, to remind myself that my value is not tied with what I do or do not accomplish. And so my encouragement for you this morning is to take some time today, this week, to ponder two questions with the Lord. The first question that I would love for you to give some thought to is, in terms of a Sabbath practice, what is necessary for you? And I use that word necessary intentionally because sometimes like, we just know we need a break. Right? We know we have to slow down. Like, we don't have a choice anymore. So for you, what might be necessary regarding a Sabbath practice? But then the second question I would love for you to think about is, what would be doable? What's a good first step into Sabbath practice? Maybe for you, 24 hours feels like totally impossible. And you know what? It, it might be right now with the structure of your life. But maybe four hours is possible. Maybe you take a little bit slower morning on a Sunday. You commit to coming to church to worship each week. And you get together with friends for lunch after church. And during that time, you're not checking your email, you're not on social media, you're just a little bit unplugged so you can be a little bit more present to the Lord and to the other people in your life. And maybe for you, it's an eight-hour thing. Maybe it starts in the morning and it goes up till dinner and then it kind of stops there and you get back to work, get ready for the week. Maybe it is a 24-hour thing for you. Maybe it starts on Saturday night and comes through Sunday dinner. Maybe that is a doable Sabbath practice for you. But remember, Sabbath is a gift. It's not meant to feel oppressive. It's not meant to feel like law. It's meant to feel like freedom and gift. So what would be doable for you in terms of a Sabbath practice? And to help lead us into these two questions as we wrap up here, uh, I want to invite you to stand and uh, we're going to leave some negative space, just some quiet, for us to reflect with the Lord on some of these things. Negative space is so important in our lives, whether it's one day a week where we stop from working or just leaving some space for silence where we can listen to the Lord and hear our own thoughts. So I, I want to invite you, if you feel comfortable, just extend your hands. You can close your eyes. Just a, a posture of openness to the Lord, ready to receive what he would give you. And we're just going to leave some negative space, just some quiet, just some silence. And in the quiet, just be reminded that God is here, that he is with you, 
and that he loves you. I want to give you a moment with the Lord to ponder where are those places in your life where you feel like you are responsible for keeping the world spinning? Where are those places in your life that you fear if you stop, you'll be dropping balls all over the place? Just take a moment to notice with the Lord and just offer those things to the Lord. Lord, this is, this is where I am. Now take, take a moment to consider with the Lord, what are those places in your life where you have bought into the lie that your value is tied up in what you can produce? Where you have tied your identity to your productivity or achievement or success? Just take a, place, a moment to notice, not to condemn, not to judge, but just to notice in the presence of the Lord and to offer these things to him. Creator God, we stand in your presence painfully aware of our finiteness, our finitude, and in awe of your infinite power and strength, glory and beauty. We pray, Lord, that you would lead us this week into a deeper place of rest in you, that we could stop struggling, we could stop striving, and we could know that we are enough because you say we are enough, just as we are. And would you lead us into a doable rhythm of stopping and resting in our lives, where we could be reminded week in and week out that we don't have to keep things together, but that you are holding us and that you are big enough. We ask this in Jesus' name. <laughs>